This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. October 1871. George E. Tyson's breath froze almost immediately as it left his mouth. The assistant navigator was farther north than any man had ventured before. Beneath him, the shipboards creaked as his gloved hand reached for the cabin door. The captain had only just returned from a sledding expedition. He had been in excellent spirits upon his arrival, but unexpectedly had fallen deathly ill. Now, George Tyson had been summoned to his bedside. Pretending not to notice the pack of overcurious sailors at his back, the assistant navigator opened the door to the captain's cabin. The muffled noises from outside grew into a fever pitch of furious shouting. Suddenly, Tyson was knocked back as a man exploded from within, barreling through the door. The ship's surgeon, Emil Bessels, didn't even seem to notice George as he stormed off in the direction of his observatory. Shaking his head at the German doctor's odd behavior, Tyson slipped into the cabin. He was immediately struck by the overpowering stench of sick and sweat. You sent for me, sir? Tyson inquired. The captain, wheezing heavily, face red from shouting, beckoned him over. A woman dabbed the captain's soaked forehead as Tyson knelt beside him. The captain whispered in Tyson's ear, and the assistant navigator started. Surely he couldn't have heard the man correctly. His speech was unusually slurred, after all. Tyson took a deep breath, then asked the captain to repeat himself. The captain did. No, Tyson hadn't misheard. Though he had withstood long months at sea, the frigid northern winter, and conditions that would make civilized men faint, the captain's words turned his stomach. They were farther from civilization than any expedition had gone before, and someone had poisoned their captain. Welcome to Survival, a podcast original. 
I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the Polaris Expedition of 1871 to 1873. This week, we'll follow the captain and crew of the Polaris through the first leg of its daring journey into the frozen north. Next week, we'll follow the crew's desperate attempt to complete their mission and return home alive. On March 4th, 1870, an excitable crowd flooded into a Washington, D.C. lecture hall. They were there to hear a thrilling tale of quests beyond the reach of the civilized world. The lecture was called Arctic Expeditions, Past and Prospective. The speaker was Charles Francis Hall, a renowned explorer of the Arctic regions. The 49-year-old Cincinnati businessman had successfully launched multiple private expeditions into the Arctic and had lived to tell the tale. As he talked, the tall, bearded man held his audience spellbound. The most enthralling of his tales centered on his time living with the indigenous Eskimo, also known as Inuit or Inuk. To bring his stories to life, Hall had brought two Inuit companions, the married couple Abirbing and Tukalito, who were referred to as Joe and Hannah. There were many people in that audience, but Charles Hall only cared about one of them. This man had the power to give him what he craved more than anything, the chance to journey farther north than any explorer in the world, the chance to explore the North Pole. That man was President Ulysses S. Grant. Four months after Hall's lecture, he received a decree from President Grant, a resolution had passed the House and the Senate, allotting the president $50,000 to fund an Arctic expedition, equivalent to roughly $1 million in today's currency. And President Grant had chosen Hall to captain the expedition. This was only the fourth expedition ever taken aiming to reach the North Pole, and Hall was determined to succeed where all others had failed. Hall was given command of the USS Periwinkle. The ship had been used as a tugboat during the Civil War and needed only a few modifications to be worthy of the Arctic seas. Once she was refitted, they rechristened her Polaris after the North Star, the guiding light of their ambitious voyage. Though Hall was a seasoned Arctic explorer, he was not a sailor. The title of captain conferred on him by the president was largely honorary. Consequently, he hired a crew who had experience sailing the relatively unexplored waters of the Arctic. Many of these men were whalers. Hall's Inuit companions, Joe, Hannah, and their young daughter, Sylvia, 
would accompany the expedition to provide insight into the landscape as well as valuable survival techniques. For his chief officers, Hall hired Sidney O. Buddington and George E. Tyson, both experienced captains of Arctic voyages. They joined the crew as sailing master and assistant navigator, respectively, but were essentially co-captains to the inexperienced Hall. In his presidential order, Grant also gave Hall command over the Scientific Corps, a branch of the expedition that had been dispatched by the Academy of Sciences. The head of this scientific team was German surgeon Emil Bessels. George Tyson observed early on that there was already a budding animosity between Bessels and Hall. It's unsurprising that an educated doctor like Emil Bessels resented being commanded by a man with no formal education. But the disagreement between the doctor and captain was much more personal than that. Several months previous, during Hall's stay in Washington, he became acquainted with Vinnie Rehm, a young woman who was just beginning to find success as a sculptor in the nation's capital. Her statue of Lincoln in the Capitol Rotunda had just been unveiled. The two corresponded frequently and affectionately and spent time together while Polaris was first being outfitted for the expedition. But Ms. Reem had more than one admirer. Emile Bessels was clearly infatuated with her as well and wrote her several love letters. Whether she returned the affection has been thoroughly lost to history, but that strange tension between the two men remained, even as they set sail as comrades in the most inhospitable of climates. Shortly before leaving New York, the American Geographical Society invited Charles Francis Hall to a reception to wish him well on his journey. There they presented him with the United States flag. This flag was unique in that it had been flown by Lieutenant Charles Wilkes as he explored the Antarctic seas, as well as by Isaac Israel Hayes, the previous explorer who had dared to head northward into the isolated Arctic. These stars and stripes had flown as far north and as far south as any American. And on June 29, 1871, they proudly adorned the four of Polaris as she set sail from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Her crew was roughly 30 souls, and more were awaiting them farther north. As Polaris departed, George Tyson watched the people along the piers, he thought of how few people knew about their unique quest and how many of those few people thought they were madmen heading to their deaths. In spite of the captain's passion for the Arctic and his captivating oratory, his inexperience quickly began to show and the crew almost immediately began to turn on him. He was subjected to near constant insubordination from the more seasoned crew members. The German-led scientific corps was especially disobedient, and Dr. Bessels did little to discourage them. While they were still in port, Dr. Bessels refused to let Captain Hall command the scientific corps, as Grant had instructed him. With the scientific corps in near-open rebellion, an ethnic divide between the German and the American crew members began to form. In order to defuse the situation, Hall granted Bessels and the scientific corps full autonomy to pursue their own agendas while on the voyage. 
But more tension began to brew between Hall and sailing master Sidney Buddington, who disagreed with how Hall was commanding the expedition. Buddington even went so far as to threaten to quit the expedition and go home. Though the initial spats were abated, the trouble was far from over. In her voyage northward, Polaris stopped in several ports along the coasts of America and Canada. Her final stop was the northern Greenland town of Upernavik. Here, they were joined by Hans Hendrik and his family. Hendrik was an Inuit tracker and dog sledder who they would rely on once the ice became too thick for the ship to pass through. While in port, Hall also purchased more dogs for the sleds and rendezvoused with the supply ship USS Congress. Captain Davenport of the USS Congress was appalled by the breakdown of discipline that he observed on Polaris. He was fully prepared to have meteorologist Frederick Meyer sent back to the States in chains for his insubordination. Upon this suggestion, the German members of the crew threatened to desert the expedition. Since they were more than half of the able-bodied seamen on board, Hall and Davenport had to relent and leave Meyer's insolence unpunished. Curiously, it was around this time that orders were given to dismantle Polaris's special boiler built for the voyage. As Polaris was being prepared for her journey northward, it was assumed that she would be gone for two or more years. Polaris couldn't carry a supply of coal to last that long, so they had a secondary boiler built to run on seal blubber instead. It's unknown why the crew disabled this secondary boiler. Some accounts point to intentional sabotage of the vessel so the expedition would fail, whereas others claim it was a sanctioned order with unclear motives, possibly an attempt to lighten Polaris's load as she headed toward icy waters. Regardless of the motive, the effect was the same. With the oil boiler thrown overboard, Polaris would not be able to raise steam once they ran out of their limited supply of fuel. But in spite of these pitfalls, Polaris persevered, heading northward, fearlessly toward the desolate land that had claimed the lives of many explorers before them. Although he put on an optimistic facade, Captain Hall was suffering from severe amounts of stress, with the burden of his goal and his crew's insubordination weighing heavily upon him, he began to have premonitions of disaster. Captain Hall was no stranger to the dangers of the Arctic. His previous adventures had been primarily concerned with discovering the fate of Sir John Franklin's 1845 lost expedition on HMS Erebus and HMS Terror. Having heard him speak at length about his past expeditions, assistant navigator George Tyson asked Hall whether that was what was occupying him. Tyson saw a shadow pass over the captain's face. It seemed to Tyson that a dark notion was harbored somewhere in the depths of Charles Francis Hall's mind. The captain suspected that some danger would befall the Polaris, and not all of them would return from the desolate cold. Coming up, Polaris makes her way farther north than any ship before, and her crew faces a point of no return. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. Almost immediately after setting sail on June 29, 1871, Charles Francis Hall's Arctic expedition was beset with problems. Under Captain Hall's inexperienced command, the USS Polaris was hampered by an insolent crew, an increasing divide between the American and German sailors, and a growing sense of foreboding. As the ship continued her northward voyage, insubordination reigned supreme with no sign of abating. The dismantling of the oil-fueled boilers continued to sow dissent amongst the crewmen, and Dr. Emil Bessel's scientific corps still stubbornly refused to follow Hall's command. There was even disagreement as to whether the North Pole could be reached at all, and how Hall would be able to tell once he had reached it. On September 2, 1871, a disagreement broke out between the senior officers advising the captain. The assistant navigator, George E. Tyson, the first mate, Hubbard C. Chester, and the sailing master, Sidney O. Buddington. They couldn't agree how far north they wanted to sail before weighing anchor for the winter. Buddington didn't want to endanger the ship. The farther they went north, the more they risked getting trapped in or damaged by the ice. The sailing master was concerned with the approaching winter, which had been the death knell of expeditions in the past. According to historian Russell A. Potter, Sir John Franklin's doomed expedition of 1845 met its end when the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror became icebound. Neither ship had enough supplies to last the winter, and the crews perished. To avoid this issue, Hall's crew planned to find a suitable harbor to winter. They would use the ship as a base to launch sled dog expeditions and eventually reach the pole by land. But that approach had its own risks. On longer land routes, they would risk driving their dogs to death, after which they would be forced to make the snowy trek on foot through the treacherous landscape. Tyson and Chester argued that the farther they sailed north, the less they had to travel by sled, and that danger would be abated. The argument got so heated that Sailing Master Buddington stormed off in frustration. Captain Hall followed, and after a long private discussion, he sided with Buddington. They would make landfall and continue by sled. The following week, Polaris navigated into a harbor where they raised the Union flag. It was the farthest north a flag had ever been placed before. Captain Hall christened their landing Thank God Harbor. The crew covered Polaris in canvas to protect her from the elements. Parties went hunting to gather food and data on the surrounding area. Meanwhile, Emil Bessels and the Scientific Corps built a makeshift observatory to gather research data. The crew would spend the next month in Thank God Harbor, 
making all of the necessary preparations for what was sure to be a harsh and brutal winter. The first sled dog expedition was led by first mate Hubbard Chester and Dr. Emil Bessels, along with Inuit dog drivers Joe and Hans. In spite of an initial difficulty managing the untrained sled dogs, their hunting mission was a success. They returned a few days later with a freshly slain musk ox, a great beast thought to be extinct in much of the world. Meanwhile, Captain Hall regained some control over his crew. Though the sailing master remained cold to his captain, Hall's affinity with the common sailors had grown. He spoke to them kindly, and when a complaint was raised about the quality of the food offered to the common men, he quickly addressed the issue. The meals for sailors and officers were soon very much the same. With a newfound vigor and morale amongst the men, Captain Hall made preparations for a sledding excursion. The previous northernmost record by sled had been set by explorer William Perry, and Hall meant to break it. As Hall assembled his party, he privately told George Tyson that he wanted to bring him along on the sledding expedition, but he didn't trust Sidney Buddington in command of the ship. Swallowing his disappointment, Tyson agreed to stay behind and look after Polaris as best he could. In spite of delays from a bitter 36-hour-long snowstorm, Captain Hall departed with his team on October 10, 1870. The party included his old comrade Joe, first mate Chester, and the sled driver Hans Hendrick. George Tyson watched the party for as long as he could until they vanished from view. He then returned to the rest of the crew to continue preparing for winter. The crew got to work banking the Polaris. Banking involves packing the gaps in the ship's hull with snow so she was airtight to the increasingly hostile wind and weather. This far north, temperatures could drop to as low as negative 49 degrees Fahrenheit. According to seasoned Arctic explorer Eric Larson, it is crucial for travelers in such climates to not only bundle in layers of warm clothing, but also to stay hydrated. Drinking water helps your body maintain a healthy blood flow, which makes it easier to stay warm. Hall's crew would melt snow into drinking water and use candles to dry wet clothing so that nobody succumbed to hypothermia. As the temperature dropped, Dr. Bessels closely monitored the crew's health. Not only was there risk of frostbite, but the rations had to be carefully proportioned so no one on the ship would catch scurvy or fall ill due to malnutrition. As the remaining crew worked tirelessly to shore up Polaris, Hendrick returned. It was only a few days into the sled trip, but Hall had characteristically forgotten a litany of essentials, including sealskin boots, candles for drying clothing, and one snowshoe. On October 17th, the sun disappeared beneath the horizon. Those with experience in the Arctic knew that they would not see it again until the long winter had passed. Sunless days had begun. Despite the lack of sunlight, Hall's trip successfully explored 50 miles of the surrounding land. He returned to Thank God Harbor on October 24th, his spirits high and ready for another trip. Captain Hall retired to his cabin to rest up 
and have a cup of coffee. Immediately after drinking the coffee, Hall felt a twinge in his stomach. Soon, he began vomiting and fell violently ill. The crew was shocked by how suddenly his illness had come on. Emil Bessels put aside their rivalry to attend to the sick man. The captain's sickness was the talk of the ship. He had no wounds or infections and had not consumed any food that could have spoiled. The only thing he had was a cup of coffee. The doctor determined that Captain Hall's body had been shocked into sickness by a dramatic increase in temperature. According to Princeton University's Office of Environmental Health and Safety, dramatic changes in temperature when exposed to extreme environments can weaken the immune system and lead to sickness. As Bessels described it, drinking his hot coffee while wearing his warm coat in a warm cabin immediately following two weeks of intense cold was more than enough to induce sickness. Hall's nausea worsened and worsened. Suddenly, he violently seized up and collapsed. Bessels examined him once again and determined that he had had a stroke, which paralyzed his left side. Before anyone knew it, Captain Hall was bedridden and delirious. When visiting the infirmed man, George Tyson suggested the captain take an emetic in order to induce vomiting and cleanse his system. Hall thought it was a good idea, but Bessels declined to administer it, saying it could make his condition worse. But as the days progressed, Hall sank further into delirium. The officers could only watch in horror as he lost his grip on reality. In his delirious ravings, he accused several crew members of poisoning him, including Dr. Bessels. Eventually, Captain Hall refused to accept treatment from Bessels entirely. He would only accept liquids offered by his Inuk companion, Hannah. Over time, he began to regain some of his health and even started walking on deck. However, his personality was noticeably changed. He was a more distant, less passionate version of the man who left New York with such high hopes. In his lucid moments, he begged Tyson to continue to the pole without him, should the sickness claim his life. Emil Bessels was frustrated in his attempts to see to the captain. After talking to the chaplain on board, he was eventually able to convince Hall to resume treatment, injecting the captain with quinine to correct his intensely elevated temperature. The doctor did not administer the emetic, as Tyson had suggested, but he did suggest bleeding hall, which the captain staunchly refused. According to Harvard Health, patients recovering from a stroke should avoid consuming an excess of fatty meats and alcohol, as well as any activity that could cause a spike in blood pressure. Dr. Bessels advised the captain accordingly, but Hall defied him, eating large amounts of cooked seal meat, drinking too much red wine, and being far more active than Bessels recommended. This final push may have sealed the poor man's fate, for on November 8, 1871, Charles Francis Hall died at the age of 50. According to Dr. Emile Bessels, he had succumbed to a second stroke. Polaris was left as far north as had ever been explored, with a rebellious crew, a crippled ship, no commander, and the deadly Arctic winter 
bearing down upon them. When we return, the crew of the Polaris face an uncertain future. And now, back to the story. On November 8, 1871, Captain Charles Francis Hall died at the age of 50. He had spent a good portion of his life searching for the fate of men lost to the unforgiving cold of the Arctic, never dreaming that he would become one himself. The Polaris had faced many challenges in her expedition northward, but after weathering insubordination, difficult navigating, and technical problems, she had successfully anchored and was being prepared for a long Arctic winter. However, her troubles were far from over. The crew was disheartened by Captain Hall's passing. In spite of all his faults as a commander, he had come to be well-liked by the men. They were mystified by the strange circumstances of his death, his rapid decline in health, out-of-character paranoia, and accusations of poisoning all raised troubling questions. Even though Captain Hall had accused specific suspects, namely Dr. Emile Bessels, none of the officers considered it anything more than a sick man's hysterical ramblings. They assumed that this far north, no man had a motive to assassinate their commander, especially when the success of the mission hung by a thread. But perhaps they would have suspected Bessels if they knew he was Hall's romantic rival. While the crew was well aware that the two men did not get along, no one knew of the shared interest Bessels and Hall had in Vinnie Ream, the young sculptor they both met in Washington, D.C. It's possible that Bessels was consumed by irrational jealousy, Poisoning a man would not be difficult for the doctor, as medical kits of the day contained plenty of arsenic. But despite their captain's deathbed insistence that he was being poisoned, the crew largely accepted the doctor's verdict. Perhaps it was too much to believe that a rational man of science would execute his commanding officer over a petty grievance, especially when so much was at stake. But suspiciously, the doctor was noticeably not grieved by his captain's death. Only a few days after the captain had been buried, he told George Tyson that Hall's death was the best thing that could have happened for the expedition. The rest of the crew had more respect for their fallen leader. Captain Charles Francis Hall was prepared for a formal burial wrapped in an American flag. The search for a suitable burial site was taxing, as the ground of Thank God Harbor was frozen and nearly impenetrable. After many hours, they finally finished a two-foot-deep grave where their fallen captain would be laid to rest. The funeral was an ominous affair. As the men dragged the simple coffin down to the shore on a sled, the crew rang the ship's bell. The sled dogs howled into the wind, as if to share in the sorrow of their human crewmates. The harsh, gale-forced wind was unforgiving, cutting through the crew's winter coats. The men could only safely say a quick prayer before each of them threw a handful of frozen earth over the coffin. They left their captain in this shallow grave, where the ice would preserve his features for longer than any of the men or women who would eventually make it home. Following Captain Hall's death, command passed to sailing master Sidney O. Buddington. 
Polaris's second captain did nothing to squelch the vein of insubordination that had grown within the crew. In fact, Buddington's leadership proved even more disastrous than the mutiny that had plagued the initial voyage. Buddington was frequently drunk on duty, in spite of the lack of liquor available to the crewmen. He frequently raided the scientific corps' liquor cabinet, the contents of which were supposed to be used for specimen preservation. All the while, the crew continued to struggle against the elements. On one of many cold nights in November, Dr. Bessels went to his makeshift observatory. By the next morning, he hadn't returned. A storm raged outside, cold and relentless. Anyone caught out in that environment would be suffering from hypothermia in minutes. However, the officers reasoned that since Bessels had a fire in the observatory, he was safe from the inhospitable cold. But after some time, meteorologist Frederick Meyer decided to brave the storm to rescue his fellow countrymen with the aid of the Inuk named Joe. They struggled against the wind, which seemed hell-bent on keeping them from retrieving the lost surgeon. After being beaten back time and time again, they made it to the observatory, where they found the doctor. Frederick Meyer's eyelids had frozen shut during the time it took to reach the observatory, but Joe was able to see what had befallen him. Bessel's fire had gone out eight hours previous, and though he was alive, the doctor was so cold, his ear had frozen solid. With tremendous difficulty, they carried the surgeon back to the ship. The Inuit typically used either igloos or stone huts as shelters against the harsh Arctic cold. These structures were normally airtight to keep out the wind and maintain the temperature within. While Bessel's simple wooden observatory provided some means of protection, it was nowhere near as airtight as an Inuit hut. With no fire to keep him warm, eight hours in the observatory had been punishing for the doctor. While Bessels and Meyer recovered, Polaris sat safely in her anchorage. The ship was nestled in an ice floe, a thick sheet of ice that kept the grounded ship from drifting or being batted about by the weather. But the next day, on November 21st, 1871, the crew awoke to the sound of the ice splitting beneath their very feet. Polaris began to drift away from shore and toward the open waters. If she were to drift too far from Thank God Harbor, the crew would be trapped at sea, most likely for the entire winter. Acting quickly, the sailors dropped a second anchor. Some of the men crossed the precarious ice floe on foot to the nearby iceberg, where they fastened ice anchors by hand, steadying the ship. For the next few days, the men sawed their way through the ice floe to wedge their way into a less exposed position. They finally pulled Polaris up alongside the iceberg, hoping that it would shield them from the elements. However, this strategy backfired in one very key way. While Polaris was wedged against the iceberg, a hostile windstorm kicked up, slamming an ice floe against the side of the boat. The flow split with the force of the impact. The blow shoved Polaris just enough to wedge the iceberg underneath her. The ship was stuck. Her deck tilted at an extreme angle that made it dangerous to stand on. 
Staying in this position, with her wood rubbing against the hard ice, meant that Polaris would eventually start to spring dangerous leaks. But Buddington did not give the order to have her pulled off the iceberg. So there she rested at an odd angle, stranded on an iceberg for the rest of the winter. Meanwhile, under Buddington's leadership, discipline continued to erode. The crew ignored their curfew, staying up, carousing, and gambling long past any hour that a disciplined expedition would have permitted. Tyson claimed he hadn't had a decent night's sleep since the 11th of November. Another of Buddington's orders made the Sunday service optional, undoing a rule that Captain Hall had fastidiously observed. This disheartened Brian, the ship's clergyman. Strangely, Buddington even distributed the ship's store of firearms amongst the men for no clear purpose. Arming the rowdy men was a bold decision, especially as boredom and confusion reigned supreme. The unending darkness of both days and nights were only ever lightened by the aurora borealis, which still didn't provide enough light to enable any useful exploration. As the winter days wore on and on, the crew grew increasingly bored, with little to do apart from fish for shrimp. Dr. Bessels continued to run afoul of the weather. One early morning excursion to the observatory led him to wander aimlessly in the dark for four hours. Afterward, he made the prudent decision to run a wire from Polaris to the building so that people going to and from the observatory weren't waylaid like he was. One night, George Tyson wandered away from the raucous noises of late-night sailors to find some quiet. In the dark, away from the ship, he found the silence all-consuming. He shouted into the blackness, but didn't hear so much as an echo in reply. The lifeless Arctic had already swallowed their captain whole, and now it hungered for more. Christmas came and went, without so much as a service to market. The winter continued to strangle the 33 passengers as they hunkered within Polaris's weatherproofed hull. On more than one occasion, the crew attempted to free the ship from its tilted position by blasting the iceberg with gunpowder, but the ice was too thick to be penetrated by the explosions. Adding more powder would threaten the ship, which had already begun to spring leaks from rubbing against the iceberg. As January of 1872 came, Dr. Bessels attempted to explore the surrounding region by sled to ascertain how far the open water extended to the north of the ship. But after a mere nine miles, he realized he couldn't properly make any observations in the dark. First mate Chester made a similar attempt the next day, but his results were just as inconclusive. As the weather slowly warmed, the discussion about how to proceed reignited amongst the officers. Chester, Tyson, and Bessels were still intent on reaching the North Pole. They were determined to fulfill the promise they had made to Captain Hall and to the U.S. government. However, not everyone shared their sentiments. In his journals, George E. Tyson alluded to conversations that, in his words, would make Charles Hall turn in his icy grave, but did not expand further. 
While there is no record of these conversations, some historians speculate that the officers of the Polaris considered faking their arrival at the North Pole. Over the course of only six months, Polaris had suffered almost every kind of indignity. She had endured insubordination, sectionalism, technical problems, weather, and a dead captain. Even though they were closer than any explorer had ever come before, the North Pole still seemed a thousand miles away. And now, as he argued with his fellow officers, the assistant navigator couldn't help but wonder whether all hope had died with the ship's captain. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with the disastrous fate of the Polaris and the men aboard. For more information on the Polaris expedition, amongst the many sources we used, we found the books Polaris, The Chief Scientist's Recollections of the American North Pole Expedition, and Arctic Experiences, The History of the Polaris Expedition, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Survival for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joel Stein. This episode of Survival was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 